In a journal article I read recently, the author asked a question that provoked my thinking. He wrote, imagine you've been handed a script of your child's life, and then you're given an eraser, and you're told you have five minutes to edit out whatever you want. Whatever you read that you don't want in your child's life to experience, you can erase out of the manuscript. So you begin to read as fast as you can. You soon discover that a learning disability will cause your child to find reading difficult, making education laborious and tiring. Do you erase that disability? You read further and notice that he or she makes a number of friends in high school, but then one of their closest friends dies of cancer. Do you edit out that friendship and the grief it will cause? Still further, you discover that your child gets into the college of their choice, but while there, they get into a car accident and end up losing a leg. Do you erase the accident? A few years later, you read that they land a wonderful job in their field of expertise, but then an economic downturn causes them to lose that job and face difficult and stressful times. Do you erase those months or years of difficulty? Imagine, with a script of someone's life in your hands, what would you erase? What would you leave for them to experience, no matter the suffering or pain or uncertainty? I couldn't help but think that even though you would never want your child to suffer loss or rejection or adversity, if you could erase every failure and every disappointment from their lives, wouldn't that actually hinder rather than develop them into faith-filled, fruitful believers. By the way, if that's true for your child, what should we expect for God's children? The Apostle James makes it very clear that the trials and testing of our faith produce endurance, depth, maturity. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. The trouble with the average view of Christians today is that God doesn't seem to know what to erase. Or maybe he doesn't have an eraser after all. Which is why the predominant question on the American mind verbalized on the street in the form of an accusation is something like, why did God let that happen? I mean, if he exists, why didn't he erase that? He ought to erase all that bad stuff. At the same time, false teachers in the church, who seem to multiply like rabbits, jump in and make things worse by fleecing the flock into believing that what you really need to do is learn how to declare your faith in God. You know, you need to learn how to, how to speak so that God gets his eraser out. Faith becomes a series of you know, declarations or statements you need to learn how to say. And if you say everything just right, you can kind of create a, you know, a spiritual force field around you which keeps anything bad from getting into your life. And the more powerful your faith, the more powerful your force field. That only happens in Star Trek. Hey, I hate to disappoint you, but that's not real. Unfortunately, one best-selling book on the Christian market promises readers that if you make these positive declarations, in fact, there's one a day for a month, that you will, and I quote, be blessed beyond your normal salary. 
beyond your normal income. God will suddenly change things in your life. In other words, you'll be able to guarantee God's richest blessings now. I think I'm going to start calling that lottery theology, which is why so many people line up for it. You buy this ticket and maybe you'll hit the jackpot. So these words, every day, this author, pastor, tells his megachurch audience as he smiles from ear to ear, and I quote, you will speak your destiny into existence. In fact, he promises further, and I'm still quoting the blurb on Amazon.com because I didn't buy the book. And my engine light just came on again today on my way into church, so I'm doing something wrong. He promises, and I quote, Use my book as your guide for declaring your victory every day. Declare health. Declare favor. Declare abundance. End quote. You need to just say the right words. And God, the mighty genie, will, will give you the, the, the greatest, happiest, best life imaginable. And the lottery winnings are going to come by the truckload. I mean, who doesn't want that? Millions of people are going to line up to buy it and try it. What if your best life in the mind of God involves the dismantling of your life? What if he wants to lead you into a deeper understanding of why Jesus Christ never defined a good life in terms of how long it lasted and how healthy you were while it lasted and how much stuff you collected on the way? What if God does want to change your life and he changes it from bad to worse? Like North Korean congregations who were herded out into the streets 40 years ago so that under the orders of Kim Tu-sung they could be run over by bulldozers. Thousands of believers were crushed to death not because they lacked faith but because they refused to renounce their faith. And their bodily remains were used to line roadbeds throughout surrounding cities. What happened to their force field of faith? See, anytime you hear any of that stuff, or you read the blurb on the dust jacket, ask the question, will that translate into North Korea? Will that work outside America? Today, there are more than 200,000 believing descendants of those who were crushed to death. They're now living under Kim's son, the new dictator. And when a believer was asked, what they were praying for, he said, the church is praying that we will be faithful to the will of God. Has it ever occurred to you that the promise of immediate and guaranteed comfort is actually the offer of Satan? That's his gospel. Eve, you can have it all. I'll back the truck up right now. When Jesus was tempted, according to Matthew chapter 4, uh, one of his temptations, Satan said, just bow to me, the verb tense says, just one time, just once, and I'll give you everything. And that same scene of temptation 
He told Jesus, you know, you really shouldn't be suffering from hunger. I mean, surely that's not the will of God. Your father, turn those stones into bread. What do you say? Eat up and serve yourself. Come on, it's time to speak some words of favor and blessing and abundance. What if God takes you from bad to worse? Where's your faith then? Like the missionary Adnarm Judson, I'm halfway through his astounding biography. He was imprisoned after being unjustly accused of collaborating with uh, the British government who'd sent troops in. He was an American, but he spoke English, so he kind of got thrown into the same pot in the early 1800s as Great Britain moved against Burma. Adnarm's wife, Anne, did everything she could do to see that Adnarm got some food while in prison, but after unbelievable months, nearly a year of unbelievable suffering and deprivation, it actually went from bad to worse, and she became so deathly ill, she was unable to even feed their three-month-old daughter, Maria. The jailer finally permitted Adnarm to leave the prison for a few hours each day so that he could carry his starving baby girl to a nearby village to beg nursing Burmese mothers to feed his daughter to. Where's his force field? Is he not saying it right? Listen, as the apostles wrote letters to the churches and believers in the first century, he discovered that the end of suffering... And this glorious rest and glorious comfort of the believer, they they were in fact guaranteed, but never in this life. There was no force field for sickness or hunger or bankruptcy or persecution or suffering or sorrow or pain. In fact, our faith will be demonstrated in our response to those things. What the apostles did do, however, was elevate all of our perspectives away from what seemed to be the finality of earth. That this was all there was. They pointed us to the coming glory of the soon appearing Lord and Savior. We're living for that and walking by faith. See, the apostles basically said, what health is there now compared to an immortal, glorified body. What wealth is there now compared to such opulence that the city of God is built on gemstones and gold is asphalt? What comfort is there now compared to the presence of Christ and the joy of his glorious appearing and our ability to worship him face to face? See, Peter... The apostle, many Bible scholars believe that when he wrote that paragraph, including the phrase, don't be surprised when you encounter a, a, a fiery trial which comes upon you for your testing, that Peter was thinking about an event that had happened centuries earlier, a literal trial by fire. And one of the greatest statements of faith in the Bible, not from believers who were, who were saying the right thing in order to get what they wanted from God, but from believers who were saying the right thing even though they thought they were going to die. Many believe the Apostle Peter was thinking of Daniel chapter 3. So with that as my introduction, turn to Daniel and the third chapter 
And let's just rehearse a story that's commonly known to the church, but it includes a demonstration of faith that is entirely uncommon and growing more and more uncommon each day. Now, in our last discussion, Daniel and his three friends have just arrived as captives of Nebuchadnezzar. They walk through the rediscovered gate of Ishtar, one of the amazing wonders of the ancient world, preserved over time thanks to Nebuchadnezzar's groundbreaking development of firing his bricks so that they lasted longer. The gate has actually been reassembled in the Berlin Museum just as it was when these young Hebrew captives walked through it. In fact, they saw what you are seeing now. Daniel walked through that gate, no doubt his mouth hanging open in absolute amazement. This is not little Jerusalem anymore, is it? This is Babylon the Great. And Nebuchadnezzar is the king of the greatest empire on the planet. Chapter 3 opens with these words. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width six cubits. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And the most evangelical scholars believe this event is taking place some 18 to 20 years after these boys had arrived. So now they're in their middle 30s or perhaps early 30s. They had already passed their first tests and now they have another one. Now, we have to stop long enough to ask the question, what would motivate Nebuchadnezzar to build an image of gold? We're going to get into the details of Daniel's end-time prophecies in another session. In fact, we'll cover it on the Sunday before the end of the world, according to the Mayan calendar. We'll find out why we'll be meeting again the next Lord's Day. Daniel has informed the king that his God gave the king that dream of a giant statue in the form of a human body. Different parts of the body were made out of different elements representing different world empires. We have yet to see the last empire form. Nebuchadnezzar was thrilled to hear Daniel interpret his dream because the interpretation informed him that Babylon was the head of gold. It was the best. It was, it was on top, made of gold. He, he also heard, of course, that you know, there would be a future kingdom of silver and then bronze and then iron and then a mixture of clay and iron, but he didn't care about that. What he seized upon was, was that his kingdom was the head of, of, of gold. So I know, let's make a 90-foot a tall, 9-foot wide statue and we'll make them probably hollow out of wood, but then we're going to plate them with gold. I like that idea. And all his counselors said, brilliant, King. That's a wonderful idea. Never mind that Daniel's God said that they wouldn't last forever. There was a kingdom of silver in the future. Never mind that. Babylon is the kingdom of gold. And so you have this image built in Dura, about 11 miles south of the capital city. Archaeologists, by the way, have since discovered a, a brick structure, 45 feet square in each direction about 20 feet high, a structure they believed, dating it back to Daniel's era, served as a pedestal for something huge. (laughs) Although whatever it was, long since disappeared. No surprise there, the bricks were left and the gold 
is gone. You need to understand, though, before we go any further, that this image is effectively Nebuchadnezzar's challenge to the God of Daniel and this prophecy. This statue represents his will for the future. We're not going to worry about silver and iron and that mixture stuff. We're, we're, we're going to be around forever. Let's make it all of gold. This chapter is implicitly repeating a question that's going to show up if you read the book of Daniel time and time again. And you can simply say the question this way. Whose God is the real God? Who is, who is the God, the real God of history? Who's in charge around here? Old Testament scholars have also pointed out this image, this statue, more than likely represented Nebuchadnezzar's patron god, Nabu. Nebuchadnezzar is effectively using this event to craft what we would call a state religion. You don't have to give up your religion. You're a god, but you're just going to add this one, and this is going to be sort of the patron god of the Babylonian Empire. Every leader, as we'll see in a minute, representing every strata of authority in the Babylonian culture is going to demonstrate his allegiance to the god Nabu and his servant emperor named after him, Nabu Kadnezer. So the image is designed, set up, and the invitations are now delivered. Notice who got an invitation. Verse 2. The Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps. Think of those as state governors. Prefects. Think of military commanders. Think of leaders in, in the Pentagon. Governors. Translated here, this word refers to leaders of smaller provinces. You might think of these as mayors of key cities. Notice next he refers to counselors. These are advisors. Think of these as senators, congressmen and women. And then he notices, he, he, you notice he, he references treasurers. They're invited. These are the, literally you could translate that, treasure bearers. Think of these as Fortune 500 CEOs and CFOs of the kingdom. Then he references judges, law bearers, you could render it. Here are your Supreme Court justices, probably of the nation and what we have in every state. Then next he he mentions the magistrates. Think of the United Nations representatives. And lastly, the rulers of the provinces, this term has a, a, has a legal uh, nuance to it and with authority attached to it, probably refers to what we would understand today as law enforcement officers, sheriffs, leading attorneys who represented the law. I say all of that to let you know, and, and you probably already knew that if you were anybody, you were here. These are the movers and shakers of the kingdom of Babylon. And everybody who was anybody got an invitation. The invitation would have been sent out much like John Phillips, the British expositor, described the invitation of Queen Elizabeth when she was crowned in Westminster Abbey. He said that when she sent out royal invitations to all the lords and nobles and the aristocracy to academic and industry leaders and the government officials to receive an invitation 
was a, a high honor, but it was more than just an invitation because it came with a statement in writing, quote, all excuses easing, which is a nice way of saying, if you don't come, you're toast. See, a royal invitation was a royal command. And you didn't get a free pass if your wife was sick or you had hay fever or whatever. You, you, had to, you had to be there. Everybody showed up. In fact, Shadrach will show up, as well as Meshach and Abednego. Now, again, before we go any further, let's answer a question. Where's Daniel? Well, we're not told. He might have been with other members of the king's cabinet, perhaps off-site. He might have been on the platform of the king. We're not given any indication that everyone was on the parade grounds ordered to bow before the image. In fact, it seems pretty clear that Nebuchadnezzar didn't bow himself. That's probably because he was on a platform, some great platform for this grand occasion overlooking the plain of Dura where everyone who was anyone gathered and around him would have been family and his closest officials. Daniel would have been one of them. In fact, Daniel, i got to have you here because you're the man who gave me the idea of a golden image. What do you think of that? Now, for the sake of time, let me give you an overview of the instructions that come next through the rest of this paragraph. Everybody's assembled. Just imagine they're out on the parade grounds. and They're eating hors d'oeuvres and punch, you know. It's in the Hebrew text. The herald stands and announces that the royal symphony is prepared to play a brand new composition in honor of his royal highness. And this God statue standing there on its pedestal now stretching 120, 130 feet into the air. And you're looking up at a ceiling about 30 feet high. 130 feet high. So dazzling in its gold plating that you can't look at it. But the the herald tells you that's not a problem because you're not here to look at it. You're here to bow before it. As soon as the orchestra of flutes and harps and horns and panpipes, fascinating study all its own, whenever it begins to play, everybody, the herald says, is to fall down. You're going to put your forehead to the ground in honor of Nabu and his emperor servant, Nebuchadnezzar. Just in case you think it's optional that you bow, maybe you didn't dress for bowing. Well, verse 6 tells you, by the way, whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And everybody feels like bowing now. So they stow away their plastic forks and plates and get ready for the music. There it is. The orchestra begins. Every Supreme Court justice, every attorney, every admiral and general, every CEO and CFO, every mayor, every senator, every sheriff, every judge, every governor falls to their knees, bows their head to the ground. What a sight. Nebuchadnezzar's just so thrilled. What loyalty. What respect. By the way, the word worship shows up nearly a dozen times in this chapter. What an amazing collective act of 
worship to the new patron God. Everybody's bowing, except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I know you probably know this story, but I want you to re-enter it as if for the first time. Because we tend to forget when I say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, yeah, those are the guys that didn't bow and they, you know, they were freed from the fiery furnace. Oh, slow down. We've got at least 25 more minutes. Was there no pressure? I mean, if there was ever a time for them to whisper to each other, hey, everybody else is doing it. In fact, there were other Jews who'd been assigned posts over these last 20 years. They're on their face. If there was ever a time to rationalize, you know, let, let's, let's just go along with it. I mean, we can do more good by being officers in the king's service than ashes in the king's furnace. I like that, Meshach. You're right. I was thinking the same thing. Now, let's not make a scene. I mean, what good is a fanatic? I mean, what good does looking weird do? We've got to build a bridge to these idolaters. God won't mind one little bow. Oh, 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 I know, I know. We will bow our knees but we won't bow our hearts. Oh, I love that. That's great. Let's do it. God won't mind one little bow. Beloved, genuine faith does not run around looking for loopholes. It does what it knows to be right. Now, evidently, Nebuchadnezzar didn't see them standing. There were probably thousands of people there, but certain officials did. In fact, the text implies They saw it immediately, which implies they were watching these three guys. They hated them. That's why you see it it twice, at least. Certain Jews, King, these Jews, were were a little bothered, these wise men were, these Chaldeans. With the way that these guys came along, okay, they passed a few tests, but they got promoted into high posts over the province of Babylon. And they're not too happy about that, and they've been waiting. This was their chance. Look at verse 12. There are certain Jews, king, whom you've appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you, treason. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you've set up, heresy. Just like that. Verse 13 tells us that this news throws Nebuchadnezzar into a rage, a fit of violent anger. He's hotter than the furnace nearby. He demands that these three men be brought before him. Verse 14. And he says to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? And then you expect the axe to fall, but we miss this part. At this moment, he's struck with this magnanimous act of charity. He says, effectively, as he cools down for a moment, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a second chance. Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the orchestra, if you'll fall down, and I'm paraphrasing, great. In other words, 
I'm going to give you a second chance, and if you bow down, I'm going to let bygones be bygones. But if you don't bow down, notice verse 15, the latter part. What God is there who can deliver you from my hand? You don't stand a chance. So what do you say to the second chance? I can imagine these, these wise men standing nearby thinking to themselves, man, we thought we had them. Where in the world did a second chance come from? Nebuchadnezzar doesn't give people second chances. I mean, think of the fact that these men have defied our king openly in front of everybody who's anybody. Every leader in his empire. And now he's given these guys a chance to change their mind, which they're going to do. What they did was rash. We've got to admit it was courageous. But, but now they've had an opportunity as they've been led forward. And now they're on the platform. They can see the furnace. And they've had time to think it through. And, and, and they've had time to wonder how long fire hurts before it kills. They're going to change their minds. What they hear next is too good to be true. Almost in unison... These three men respond, verse 16, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. In other words, we did what we did, and and we know why we did it, and we don't even need to explain it, but what you need to know, king, is that we, we, we don't need a second chance. Verse 17, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But, get this, even if he does not, but if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That's the greatest statement of faith. You can imagine anybody saying, even the great Martin Luther asked for a night to pray before giving his decision when he was told to recant what the church claimed to be heresy. These guys didn't even pray about it. They just kind of blurted it out in unison. Oh, we don't need a second chance. God can deliver us from your hand, but if he chooses not to, we're were ready to die. They'd actually had days to prepare for it, actually. They knew it was coming. They had in their minds already assumed that they would die. But not before one of the most remarkable statements of faith in the Bible. Listen, okay. Our God can take us and free us from your hand, but if not. Now, wait a second. Back up. Stop with Our God is able to deliver us out of your hand. Stop there. That's faith. That'll sell books. I mean, I can see the force field, you know, forming. But they didn't stop there. They actually announced that God might not get out his eraser. He might allow them to die. This isn't doubt. This is faith. This is true faith. Praying, Lord, this is what we want. But thy will be done. There are people that believe, oh, man, you just trashed the whole thing. That's doubt. That isn't faith. Declare what you want. These men 
went on not to express doubt, but the deepest kind of faith. My friend, you don't speak your destiny into existence. You surrender your destiny to the Lord of the universe who does exactly what he wants to do. And we submit to him. Well, their answer seals their death warrant. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar gets so angry, he orders the furnace to be heated seven times hotter. Well, I'll show you guys. I'm going to heat it seven times hotter. Now, we know from history and the help of archaeology that that this was a smelting furnace. It's a large, round structure with a domed roof and a lid right on the very top, a large lid that could be opened through which they would deposit their materials. There was a large opening at the bottom, a few feet from the ground, from which they could remove the ore and other materials, ashes, coals. There were holes, large holes around that structure through which they could insert bellows and they could force air into that oven and make it even hotter. The king effectively orders, get out the bellows. I want it seven times hotter than it's ever been. You would get to that top hatch or door on that roof by way of a ramp typically made out of earth. Up that ramp, these three young men were carried, still dressed in their clothing. They're just bound. They're going to be thrown in like logs on a fire. When that door opens, something unusual happens. You know the story. Perhaps it kills these three soldiers or those that were in the company of taking the Hebrews to the top, and Hebrews fell in through that opening. While the others died. Now, I don't know about you men, but I don't know much about ovens. And I don't spend much time in the kitchen, which is a win-win for our family, for everyone's safety. Sometimes my wife will ask me to get something out of the oven. And uh, have you noticed that when you open that oven, you're immediately hit with a wave of, of hot air. So much so that you maybe even close your eyes and turn your head while you open it up until the blast kind of gets past you. Evidently, as they opened that hatch, the gust of air was so powerfully hot that as soon as the soldiers opened it, they collapsed within moments, and those three men fell into the furnace. They should have immediately ignited and for a few seconds perhaps writhed on that bed of white-hot coals until they literally disappeared. Notice verse 24. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound in the midst of the fire? Verse 25. He said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. The plural form, a correct translation. He didn't know anything about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But he did believe, as all Babylonians did, that gods, many of their gods, had sons. What he's saying here is that that fourth man looks divine, looks unique. We're not told why. He could check that out. Or perhaps it was simply the fact that a fourth man appears. 
And they didn't throw him in there. And he will quickly disappear as well. This is what theologians call, I believe, a Christophany. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ taking some form like he did when he appeared to Abraham before destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis chapter 18, when he took the form of a man who wrestled with Jacob by the brook, Genesis 32. King says... Look at them. They're walking around in that like it's a palace and not a furnace. Look at verse 26. The Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Now just slow the train down for a moment. You're one of these three. What do you do now? I have a few thoughts. Abednego could have said, why don't you come in here after us? Hot shot. You and Nabu, Schnabu, you come on in here. Meshach could have said, we're not coming out until we get a raise and a new chariot. Shadrach could have said, well, we're not coming out of here until you apologize. Do you show some respect for our God? Do you make things right? We, we've been, we have been humiliated in front of all the leaders of the kingdom. Until you say something about us, we're not coming out. Have you ever been mistreated? And then vindicated? What would you say next? Who gets the credit here? Evidently, God did. Did you notice the only thing the fire burned away was what bound them? That was it. They came out of the fire. Verse 27 says they're immediately inspected. They're not singed. Their clothes weren't burned. They didn't even have the smell of fire on them. Only one thing has changed. Those ropes that bound them are no longer there. Isn't that just like fiery trials, though? God intends that they burn away whatever it is that binds our minds and our hearts and our affections to earth. Now Nebuchadnezzar can't stop saying good things about God. (laughs) Interesting guy. There's no other God, verse 27. No other God is able to deliver in this way. Now I've seen everything. By the way, he's impressed, but he's not converted. He's got a few notches to come down before that'll happen, and it will, but for now he's amazed. Verse 30 informs us that all three men were caused to prosper in the province of Babylon. Now that's a long way of saying they got promoted. They probably got a new chariot, too. Why? Because they spoke favor into their destiny? Because of their faith spoken force field around them? Oh no, you remember back up in verses 17 to 18 they said our God is able to save us but if not if not we are still following the real God and by the way you're just worshipping a hollowed out gold plated statue 
The king promoted them because he had just discovered three men who couldn't be bribed or threatened even to the pain of death to violate their character. And that's who you want leading in the kingdom. Now, if I were God, I would have stopped the story at about verse 18 because that would be a that'd be the best-selling version. I'd say, boys, you, you passed the test. Congratulations. Here's a new chariot. I mean, he, he could have snuffed out that furnace as soon as they declared their faith. He could have sent a gust of wind and tipped over that hollowed-out statue. He could have plugged up all the instruments in the orchestra. He was obviously planning to do some miracles. He could have done anything. But did you notice? He let them get falsely accused. He let them be humiliated in front of all their peers and culture. He let them experience the wrath of a pagan king. He allowed the soldiers to turn up that oven into a raging inferno. He allowed them to get carried up that ramp, their lives flashing before their eyes. He let them fall into that furnace, perhaps their eyes tightly shut and their heads turned slightly away, expecting at any moment to burst into horrifying flames and die. He did not eliminate the fire. He just joined them in it. Which is what he does with you and me. He doesn't eliminate the trial. Sometimes he allows it to be heated seven times hotter. Ladies and gentlemen, you need to know that these men were in the middle of that fire, in the middle of God's will. You see, God didn't want them to experience the elimination of trouble. He wanted them to experience his presence in the middle of trouble. So he didn't erase it. See, we think that faith is going to result in immediate deliverance and we discover that God is most often interested in long-term development. One author put it this way, God is not at work in your life creating circumstances you want. He is at work in your circumstances creating in you what he wants. Let me close with three observations of genuine faith. I know we're over time. I'm almost finished, but it will get worse before it gets better, okay? Three observations of genuine faith demonstrated out there in the plain of Dura. And I'm going to give them to you quickly. Genuine faith is demonstrated by following God, number one, regardless of the feelings inside us. Number two, in spite of the circumstances around us. Number three, no matter what the consequences are before us. I'll come back and repeat that in a moment. But this is why their testimony will be so powerful to the Christian in any generation, in any culture, in any country. This works in America. This works in North Korea. This works in Burma. Their testimony is so powerful. Not because God delivered 
these three men from death, but because they were willing to die for their faith. Because they understood that either way, God was in control. Our God is able to deliver us, but if not, he's still on the throne. That's faith. That other stuff is make-believe. Genuine faith is demonstrated by following God, number one, regardless of the feelings inside of us. Number two, in spite of the circumstances around us. Number three, no matter what the consequences are before us. And with this I close. In fact, you can pack everything up and stand up if you'd like. Go ahead. It'll make you feel like you're just about to leave. (laughs) Got an email from one of our elders on our elder team, and he said, Stephen, you got to tune into Fox News. He said they're going to interview, Huckabee's going to interview Johnny Erickson Tata and her husband. And I caught the last two minutes of it. But I was able to catch just enough of it to hear Johnny, if you know her story, swimming accident, decades now, paralyzed in a wheelchair, used significantly by the Lord. I heard her say to Governor Huckabee, and I went and wrote it down, and, by the way, to millions of people who were watching, quote, I want my life to be an audio-visual of the power of God. I want my life to be an audio-visual of the power of God. And has it ever been? And you think, wait a second, how? She can't walk. That would be a demonstration of the power of God, wouldn't it? No, she's testifying that while God has not erased her trial, he has joined her in it. He has given her grace to persevere in it. And she knows by faith the gospel that one day he will release her from it. That is faith. Like Peter the Apostle who wrote, don't be surprised by a trial, a fire. No matter what it is, no matter how long it lasts, it cannot in any conceivable way compare to the joy of that day, one day, when we see Jesus Christ face to face. Father, thank you for the testimony of these three men recounted now for several thousand years and even to this day alive, fresh, capable of encouraging our hearts. Would you redefine for us a pure definition of faith? Would you reshape our definition of your sovereignty? your love and grace and mercy and cause us to walk out of here today committed to your power that you can indeed release us from any trial. But if you do not, we will continue serving